Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox hosted by Richard Lummis. What makes a great leader? Is it genetic or can you learn leadership skills? Join Tom Fox and Richard Lummis in this podcast where they consider leadership from a wide variety of perspectives, academic, behavioral science, history, popular culture, the movies, and much more. You'll learn about specific tactics and strategies that you can bring to your own leadership toolkit. 12 O'Clock High is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this podcast, we consider the leadership lessons from Colonel Walter Reed as he led the team, which discovered what caused yellow fever, how it was transmitted, and how to eradicate it. Hello, this is Richard Lummis, and I'm here with Tom Fox for another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. In these discussions, we draw what we hope are interesting examples from our own experiences, history, business, literature, and politics to examine what constitutes good leadership and extract lessons we can use to improve our own leadership skills. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Today, we're going to discuss a topic with particular resonance today as it involves research into epidemics. Yellow fever was a scourge of tropical areas for centuries, although cities as far north as Philadelphia also suffered from regular epidemics. It was largely responsible for the failure of the French attempt to build a Panama Canal in the 1880s and 90s, and it killed thousands of U.S. troops during the Spanish-American War. At the time, it was thought unsanitary conditions or maybe bad water caused the disease. In the usual telling, a U.S. Army doctor, Walter Reed, proved that instead it was transmitted by the Aedes aegypti mosquito. Well, the story is considerably more complicated than that. Um, Walter Reed was born in 1851 in Virginia, uh, son of a Methodist minister. He attended the University of Virginia. He graduated with an MD in 1869, but he wasn't yet 18. He remains the youngest ever recipient of an MD from UVA. He received a second MD from New York University a year later and worked for the New York Board of Health until 1875. At that point, he joined the Army Medical Corps and was stationed in uh, various outposts across the American West, caring for uh, American Indians as well as soldiers and their families. During this period, he also completed advanced coursework in pathology and bacteriology at the Johns Hopkins University Pathology Laboratory. 1893, he joined the faculty of the George Washington University School of Medicine and the newly opened Army Medical School in Washington, D.C., where he held a professorship in bacteriology and clinical microscopy. Now, it's important to remember that at this time, the the germ theory of disease by Louis Pasteur was just beginning to be widely accepted. And so bacteriology and microscopy were uh, cutting-edge sciences at the time. 1896, he proved yellow fever among enlisted men stationed near the Potomac River was not a result of drinking the river water. Uh, He proved that the enlisted men who got yellow fever had a habit of walking through the local swampy woods at night, which the officers did not do. He also showed that local civilians drinking from the Potomac River had no relation to the incidence of yellow fever. Reed was sent to Cuba to study diseases in U.S. Army encampments there during the Spanish-American War. He was appointed chairman of a panel formed to investigate an epidemic of typhoid fever, and that sent him back to Washington, which has uh, relevance later. But he and his colleagues showed that contact with fecal matter and food or drink contaminated by flies caused the epidemic. 
this also had, has relevance to the subsequent uh, investigations into yellow fever because it was thought that it, that it was carried by similar vectors. Uh, he returned to Cuba in 1900 to examine tropical diseases, including yellow fever, uh, appointed by Surgeon General George Sternberg. Sternberg was one of the founders of bacteriology uh, at the time and was a, a great patron of, of Reed's. So, Tom, um, you want to talk about his tenure with the uh, Yellow Fever Commission in Cuba? Sure. Uh Richard, obviously this is a prescient uh, topic for this time of the coronavirus health crisis, but I was uh, equally intrigued by uh, our study uh, and investigation into Reed in preparation for this podcast, as well as to revisit the experiments, uh, human experiments he engaged in to determine determine and confirm how yellow fever was passed from human to human. Uh, all of those, I think, uh, are relevant questions today, certainly in the, in the area of medical ethics uh, and in the broader business ethics uh, as well. But if, before I get there, uh, just a couple of thoughts on uh, Walter Reed, the man. Um, he he, he really passed into living legend, and we'll talk about his death and subsequent legacy a little bit. Uh, but when you say Walter Reed, probably 95% of Americans have heard that because of the hospital that bears his name and subsequent um, numbers of medals, and he even had a postage stamp in his honor. I don't think you can get much higher than that, but perhaps having a hospital or medical complex named in your honor is more impressive to the medical community. But I was really glad you mentioned his um, graduation from medical school at 18, and that actually held him back from the practice of medicine, leading him down a path which led to uh, his discovery of the transmission vector for uh, yellow fever. And that uh, change in path was to go into the U.S. Army. He, uh, not that he was viewed too young to be a competent surgeon, or, or physician uh, upon graduation, but he was simply viewed as too young to have the gravitas necessary. Uh, and I found that really interesting, and I suppose that's still a, a bit of a prejudice today, not simply for a, a super uh, learner and super student who may graduate early, but if you physically look young, you're going to be perceived as inexperienced. And I can remember early in my legal career, being told that clients want someone with some gray hair. Yeah. Uh, but because he was unable to uh, successfully transition into private medical practice, he went to the U.S. Army. And I found that a, a fascinating decision. One, because he was able to practice his chosen profession. Two, he was able to um, have if not a, a very large salary, at least uh, a wage that would sustain he and his family and allow him to put a little bit away from for savings so that he had an adequate income. Um, and uh, going into the military, uh, probably in this day and age, that's that's not a consideration for many people, uh, perhaps on the enlisted man it is, enlisted man level. But uh, I thought that was uh, interesting for that period of time in, in America. But it also shows that uh, even if you are um, blocked from practicing your chosen profession, there may be other options open to you. And he was able to successfully transition into the Army. Um, interestingly, uh, he is... Um, 
he led the team which determined how typhus was um, transmitted. And of course, tri- typhoid Mary is, is well known to American culture as well. But he was the... Uh, uh, brief, brief, brief correction, Tom. You're talking about typhoid rather than typhus. Typhoid, thank you. Uh, but he was the led that team. And uh, some of the research uh, we read for this podcast indicated if that had been his only accomplishment, that would have been enough for one lifetime. So he was well-versed in uh, bacteriology and um, setting up the, uh, uh, not setting up, but being assigned to the Yellow Fever Commission. Um, he was able to bring those skills to bear. Initially, uh, they had to determine what caused yellow fever. And from my reading, it, it appeared that he thought that it was passed uh, via ex- excretia of patients, as was uh, typhoid. And he found that not to be true. And in fact, he said, to my very great surprise, uh, the strong evidence against the widely accepted notion. And that led back to the theory which was posited actually uh, earlier in 1897 by an Italian scientist, Giuseppe Santarelli, that it was uh, passed via mosquito, which was fairly, uh, if not controversial, uh, cutting edge at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so after they were able to determine uh, the, uh, the cause of it, the question became, how was it transmitted? And this is where really I thought uh, the genius of Reed uh, came into play with uh, the uh, quarantining of uh, personnel and testing physically on human human testing. And it led to uh, the creation of something called fomites, which I was not aware that was a thing or a term. <laughs> but uh, fomites is where they put these people up and they put them in quarantined uh, shacks. Uh, and it was uh, through a wide variety of testing. Uh, it included things like infect, uh, clothing from infected uh, persons, uh, bedding from infected persons, water from infected uh, persons, uh, drinking of glasses and glassware. And they were determined that was not how yellow fever was passed. And they were able to determine uh, it was passed. Uh, they even... Uh, injected people directly uh, to see how they would react, but uh, they were able to determine it was through mosquitoes. And uh, that was um, not controversial or even, I I would hate to say revolutionary, because after my research or our research, I would have said an evolutionary position. But nevertheless, it gave everyone involved, the U.S. government, all governments, cities, states, militaries, everyone, a, a mechanism to fight the disease. And so the um, the creation of the fomites, the quarantining, and the rigorous testing uh, that he went through, and it was a relatively short time. I think uh, 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 phase one and phase two were within 12 to 18 months. So uh, they were able to, to do so quite quickly. Did you perhaps have a different take, or was that consistent with what you read? That's that's generally consistent with what I read, but there was one factor that really struck me, which is that he had become focused on issues of sanitation and health during his period in the American West, um, especially dealing with uh, the army encampments and the Indian reservations at the time. And so that carried through on his uh, research on, on typhoid fever. And what, one thing that I thought was remarkable was his ability to drop that and consider another mechanism. Um, a lot of people just get stuck. He had great success with that theory, and but he was able to switch and change it. 
he later credited a, a Cuban doctor, uh, Carlos Finley, um, with the idea that the there was a vector and that it might be mosquitoes. And Finley had first formulated his theory in, eight, in the early 1880s. Um, and one of the things that uh, people object to about Reed now is that the the Cuban did not get the full credit for the discovery, but in fact it was Reed's meticulous work that actually proved the theory. Um, in addition, one of the things that struck me was the early work was actually carried out by a couple of his subordinates uh, at a time when he was in Washington working on the typhoid fever uh, study. And that work was quite sloppy and ended up killing one of his subordinates uh, who, who contracted yellow fever, probably through a, a self-inflicted mosquito bite with an infected mosquito. Um, but it was only when he got back and got control of the work and did his controlled studies that uh, he was actually able to prove satisfactorily that the mosquito was the carrier. He proved the incubation period of the disease in the mosquito um, and so forth. And so it was, uh, it was really interesting scientific work in a lot of ways. Richard, I'm glad you brought up Carlos Finley because, uh, I thought that Reed was very open and straightforward about giving credit to Finley. He was. And that he, he made no bones about it, that, that this is mine, or I did this, or even this was a team. Uh, he certainly was the one that put the rigor around the experiments, the mosquito experiments. But uh, I thought uh, his crediting of Finley was uh, due credit to uh, Walt, Walter Reed himself. And in the um, one of the things that we both stumbled upon that I think we both enjoyed were uh, the, the Walter Reed papers at the University of Virginia Health System. And uh, they were extraordinarily extensive. Uh, I haven't delved into university papers in many, many years. But um, they had a very good summary of the tests involved of the four phases that Reed uh, used and the, and the rigor he put around that. And the uh, I don't want this podcast to seem like simple adulation, but in, in studying this, it really drove home to me, and particularly in our current situation, why you do have the need for that rigor. And whatever the economic dislocation and uh, uh, commentary about how fast we need to get back to normal is, uh, you cannot do away with that scientific rigor, uh, whether or not it's it's utilizing the human subjects uh, or in some other form of testing. But that this, the rigor that uh, Reed had put in place is, is something that needs to be understood that we have to have today. Yeah. Well, and that brings up the the other issue that I think is is really critical here, which is the issue of the informed consent when you're using human subjects. Um, Reed actually um, set a precedent through the use of written uh, informed consent form forms, which were bilingual. Uh, a lot of the subjects were recent immigrants from Spain, many of whom were illiterate. Um, and so this has cast or caused a lot of people currently to say that, well, these weren't really uh, informed consent. And also they paid them quite handsomely for the risk. Um, so uh, what do you think about all that? Well, uh, a couple of things. One is we had informed consent to um, 
the payment, and the payment was uh, fairly substantial. Uh, in in today's dollars, approximately eight thousand to participate, and twenty thousand if you contracted yellow fever. Uh, even today, I don't think that that's anything to to really scoff at. Well, the death rate if you did contract it was ten to fifteen percent. So that that is a not insignificant risk. <laughs> Certainly uh, keep your heirs on notice. Um, have your will in place, I suppose, uh, is the legal byword from that. But uh, the um, I was not as concerned or was not as troubled by the ethics employed by Reed uh, because I think everyone understood, and, and you correctly pointed out that they had recent immigrants to Cuba from Spain. I think everyone knew of the dangers of yellow fever, and, and people— volunteered for a wide variety of reasons. Some were soldiers who wanted to do uh, honor and bravery were very important to them. I think uh, medical personnel, you mentioned the uh, colleague who died. I think he probably uh, was committed to doing so, being a part of the tests so that uh, he could suffer with his patients or at least not be accused of uh, testing on people without willing being testing on himself, but um, people engaged in their own self-interest. And uh, I guess the, the other thing is I, I don't think there was uh, any uh, unknown consequences for yellow fever at this time, meaning I think everyone knew it was a potential death sentence. So the people went in literally with wise, uh, eyes wide open Although only about four of uh, ten volunteers in the final phase were Americans, um, I found the the entire process um, raised questions, but I don't think they answered questions, at least for me, from the ethics front negatively. Well, it's important to point out that of the ten volunteers in that third phase, by which point they understood how it was being transmitted, or at least thought they did, um, of those ten, three died. So um, that's nowadays that would be a huge scandal. But at the time, I think you're right. People did it for different reasons. In fact, we saw that one of the American volunteers was a civilian. And one of the things about yellow fever is that exposure to it creates a lifelong immunity. And so if you go through it once and you have good medical care and you survive, then you're safe. And this guy wanted to start a farm in Cuba and basically figured he was going to get it sometime. So... You might as well get it now and get paid for it. Uh, yes, uh, yet another reason uh, for doing so. So a wide variety of reasons. Um, I guess, were, were you troubled by uh, some of these ethical questions, or was it a different time and place that's really not applicable uh, to today? That's actually absolutely my feeling, that this he did more than other people at the time did in his attempts to inform people of the risks. It's quite clear that volunteers were allowed to withdraw um, if they felt that the risks had changed, and apparently they did change. The Initially, they set up the two buildings, one of which was horrible and covered with all the uh, diarrhea-soaked bedding and so forth from the patients, and it was dark and smelly, and the other one was clean and airy, and it was full of mosquitoes. And so according to the initial theory at the time, you would want to be assigned to the clean, airy building. But it became quite clear over time that that was not, where the, that that was not the, uh, the, the correct choice in terms of risk. Um, and the volunteers were allowed to uh, withdraw or change their participation. So I think he did 
certainly by the standards of the time, he seems to have gone beyond what was normally expected at the time. I was a little, I don't want to say ashamed, but I was a little disappointed in myself uh, to to find out Walter Reed died shortly after this. And he died from a ruptured appendix and peritonitis. And and I think he was 51 at the time of his death. Um, I felt like I should have known that for for such a well-known American. Uh, But uh, (laughs) on the whole, uh, he, uh, the other thing that struck me is um, he, the readings we had seemed to indicate he was not an, uh, I don't want to say humble man, but uh, certainly he, he wasn't a braggadocio. And he wasn't out to, to tout his, his own work or his own discoveries. He gave credit to Finley. He talked about the rigor in his work. He did things on a rigorous basis. Um, and that seemed to me to be as important a legacy for the medical community, for uh, scientific research uh, going forward as his actual discovery. Do you have any thoughts on the, the process he used, or was it a con- really just a continuation of what had been previously developed? Well, I think in some ways it was it was a continuation, but it was a, it was definitely an extension. And in terms of uh, you know, leadership qualities, I think that the the difference in rigor between the early stages and the later stages shows that he was an excellent hands-on manager. Um, he, I think he can be faulted for the initial stages, which were admittedly conducted in his absence. Uh, but I, and he was distracted by his work on the typhoid fever, but he, he failed to maintain control at that early stage. But other than that, I think his, his research was absolutely cutting edge. Well, this was a fascinating, uh, study, Richard. I'm glad we uh, took him up in this time. I agree. And uh, I think there are some lessons there for us today. And, uh, I think he should not be forgotten. Well, thank you all for listening. and we- This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership. We have linked to several resources in the show notes, so if you want additional research or reading on Colonel Walter Reed, I hope you will check them out. I also hope you will join us again next week where we take up leadership lessons from Marcus Aurelius. 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership, is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.